Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll attend an exhibition at Wilkes University that features the work of Pennsylvania native and renowned pop provocateur Andy Warhol. We'll give you some highlights of last weekend's East Coast Paracon featuring a past life regression session and a discussion with a medium who communicates with the spirit world in a remarkable way. We'll also get insights into the behavior of canine companions with an author who spent time with the monks of New Skeet. They use their gifts to train dogs in Cambridge, New York. He famously predicted that everyone would be famous for 15 minutes. But pop art sensation Andy Warhol's staying power has increased exponentially since his premature death in 1987 at the age of 58. Warhol loved celebrity culture, music, fashion, and movies, and was fascinated by consumerism. Hence his Campbell's Soup Can Silk screenings, which heated up the debate over what's art. Some of these screens are spending their time in the Sordoni Art Gallery at Wilkes University through the end of the year. Part of an exhibition entitled 15 Minutes from Images to Icon, assembled by director Heatherson Cavich, who gave us a tour this week. The exhibition is 15 Minutes from Image to Icon, which looks at the inspired process and influence of Andy Warhol. You'll see works that really put Andy Warhol on the map. You'll see resources that Andy Warhol was inspired by to create the works. And then you'll see pieces that Andy Warhol basically inspired. You're looking at a full circle here. It's pretty pretty cool to, I think, way to look at him and his influence. Well, I think overall we were looking at an artist that would have name recognition, number one. But number two, he's a Pennsylvania artist. He's a Pennsylvania native. So we really wanted to stress that uh, when we were bringing people into the gallery for the first time. You know, he's a product of Pennsylvania, and that's pretty pretty exciting for anybody aspiring in this, in this uh, profession. <laughs> As a, a curator and somebody who obviously loves art to pieces, when you heard that this might be a possibility, what did you think? It was exciting for me because uh, it's one of those things where you can either purchase an exhibition or you can curate an exhibition. I had the opportunity to curate it. <laughs> so so the cool thing about that is, you know, it's looking at different collections, um, seeing what would fit to your, your, I guess, show thesis, and then really bringing that all together in, in a space itself. So 
curating an exhibition is always a highlight for anybody in this position. When you set out to curate an exhibition, what are the things you're looking for? What's on your mind? I'm sure you have some things that you think, well, I could probably get a hold of that. And then you probably have things in your mind that think, you think, wow, if I could just get a hold of that. How did that go for you running the gamut? The nice thing that I did know about is that the Andy Warhol Foundation has what's called the Legacy Collection. And they gifted to 180 institutions across the United States the Polaroids that Andy Warhol took um, in preparation for his vanity portraits. So that's 28,500 Polaroids that are out there. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. That was a good place to start because basically that's Andy Warhol creating the iconic Marilyn type image. You know, Marilyn Monroe had her press shot that was done from Niagara. And that's what he used to make that iconic image. But for the people who basically commissioned him for a similar type of portrait, they didn't have that. So he went and he created that. So getting in and actually exploring who all these people were and what, uh, what resulted in that, that's a lot of fun. Then you get into, well, it would be great to get the Marylands themselves so people can see sort of what they are asking for. So the fact then to not just locate one Marilyn, but the entire set of 10 was really pretty great. And then on top of it, to have the source piece, what Warhol had used to actually create that image, the still shot from Niagara was pretty exciting. And you also see images of Marilyn that were done around the same time, but a lot more interpretive. He was really looking for the manufactured image of Marilyn, not the more interpretive ones. Did you get anything on loan from any museums for this? I did. We have pieces from the Dickinson College, Haverford College, University of Maine at Presque Isle, University of Northern Iowa, and then we have works from the Andy Warhol Museum itself. And then we have some private collections um, from the um, well-renowned photographer Greg Gorman and Henry Leutweiler. Um, Greg Gorman himself actually worked for Interview Magazine, where with the magazine that Andy Warhol started. From a, a young person, when do you remember hearing the name Andy Warhol, and then what did you discover about him in the aftermath of hearing his name? I was really young. I, I'm from a family of artists. My parents used to take me to New York. I actually remember I was in eighth grade when he passed away. So, and I was so devastated because he was a name that I knew. Uh, I loved the Golden Marylands when I was a kid. Uh, and that was something that I was always like, you know, I, I always like seeing that piece at, at MoMA. So, you know, and the fact that this is like a childhood, like icon for me, uh, being able to now revisit his work using my voice is a really pretty exciting opportunity to have. Take us to a place right now where you want to show us something that really wowed you big time. Sure. These are the Campbell soup cans. Uh, you know, it's one of these things where, yeah, this is Warhol. This is what Warhol is known for. But I honestly have to say it's, it has a lot of levity to it when you actually have them delivered and you're sitting there with all the bubble wrap and you're opening them and you're thinking, this is what made Andy Warhol, Andy Warhol, right here. So this is, you know, the 1962-63 series that he had done that he created. Um, and it was really great because these were 32. They lined a whole room and they were shown like, on an, like leaning on a shelf as if they were in a, uh, in a supermarket. The fact that I, I'm able to see these, hold these, and really consider them part of my, my work here, my work as a curator, was incredibly exciting. This was a pipe dream <laughs> when, I, when I was thinking about this show. I was like, 
Maybe I'll get a can. I, I got three, and that was really pretty awesome. You know, again, it, it's this is this is iconic. This is you know covers of textbooks. This is, um, you know, this is the stuff when you know Andy Warhol. This is what you know, and the fact that it's here is exciting. When you were uh, studying art. How often do you think you looked at these in a in a magazine yeah, or in a book or whatever? That's endless. It's just endless. <laughs> you know, I mean, you've just seen them over and over again. And then when you look at them, they're screen prints. But look at there's it's not completely even so you have like areas where the register marks are a little bit off so they're not entirely perfect and the fact that they're that you still see the hand in this that's really pretty exciting because you know that's what these brushes are from you know the Leutweiler that you see up front there you're seeing like all these little pieces of the imperfections that's that's a bit of the man that's in them and that's really pretty fun. All right let's go to Marilyn over here sure. and you can talk a little bit about how this did evolve with the the, the photograph, of course, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're seeing first, this is the publicity image that the studio put out for the film Niagara, where she plays this femme fatale. So you're seeing her like completely all dolled up, not a hair out of place, you know, with the low cut dress and everything like that. But you're seeing this, this sort of headshot that incorporates a lot of her shoulders and her bust and everything like that. What he decides to do then is that he really crops in on the actual head of her and really focuses on the fact that she's wearing makeup, her hair, you know, like he, he really dolls her up even further than what you're seeing in the actual Niagara still itself. He focuses on, on like really changing up like the color palette an awful lot as you kind of work through the set of them. And with the set kind of changing and evolving, like once you get to the end green piece over there, it's very off register and whatnot, and it starts to imply a lot of her emotional breakdown. This, piece, this series was started the day after the Campbell's Soup Can show came down. He was like, what's next? Oh, well, another piece of Americana has fallen here. I'm going to start investigating the portrait. So I think what's also really pretty interesting is that this is a long tradition in the arts, painting food, painting portraits. He's just arriving at it in a very contemporary way, just a little bit different than what we typically would see. So I'm unfortunately not showing this. I didn't turn on the screen test for That's you. Fine. But the thing about the screen test, they're showing, it's, it's from the 13 Most Beautiful series, and it's showing people like Dennis Hopper and Lou Reed and Edie Sedgwick, you know, some, some names that you recognize, but some that you don't so much, but they were familiar in the factory. One of them was the name Freddie Herco, who was a dancer, very close friend of Warhol's. And, um, you know, in one evening, he actually danced his way right out of a window to his death. Mortality is a big piece of Andy Warhol's work, even though it may not be apparent from the get-go. So what you're seeing over here with the flowers pieces, it's number one, a response to that sort of hippie flower power movement, but it's also thought of as a memorial to Freddie Herco. You know, it may not be totally apparent of that, but think of it, you know, it's something that's, you know, you always are thinking about flowers at the death of, of someone, and Freddie Herco was very close to Warhol himself. Um, I mean, we see mortality come up in his work. You know, he did the Jackie series, but he also did what was called the Death and Disaster series, which started with the JFK assassination. So we have a lot of the press images that were done with the JFK assassination in the back. Something, again, a lot of turmoil in the 60s, so we're looking at, at a lot of that. 
And then in the end, you're seeing one of his from his final one of his final um, print sets, the camouflage sets, where he did a, a set of ten, much like he did the flowers in the Marylands. But um, he was doing paintings where he overlaid the camouflage over his self-portrait, over the artist Joseph Boys, or the Statue of Liberty. And then he did these, you know, just the camouflage themselves. The camouflage is, you know, camouflage is hiding something in plain sight, you know. It's also hiding something in plain sight in a landscape. Again, now it's another response to landscape painting. It's just in a way that we wouldn't think about it, right? Now, too, we're also thinking, well, if he's going to overlay that over his self-portrait, he's hiding something in plain sight. What is that? Kind of, it brings up a lot of questions as to what was he thinking at the time. With pink camo, a lot of times people are thinking he's hiding his sexuality in plain sight. The interview magazines, obviously, that was yeah. the, the, even the notion of making a magazine of that <laughs> size. I mean, I look at that now and I think, even sitting on the shelf, it was so big yeah. and so filled with beauty. Why did you decide to make those interview magazines part of your show? You know, the interview magazines were actually an outgrowth of his um, connection with film. Uh, he wanted to be at the New York Film Festival one year and he was denied press access. So he's like, okay, well then I'm gonna make a magazine and you're gonna have to give me press access for that. So, you know, I, I think it's really funny, but it's also, and people are like, well, who's gonna read this? And he's like, he, he just plainly says, well, the person on the cover will. <laughs> But it was his way to really have access to celebrity. You know, from a young age, he was writing young starlets, young Hollywood um, for the, the little press shots, you know. So his very first one that he got was Shirley Temple. He featured that on the back of Interview Magazine at one point. All of this is this act of like belonging. Like he's a son of a Eastern European immigrant family. He's wanting to belong here, feel like American. So he's writing all these starlets. He was too poor to actually buy like teen magazines at first run. So he'd buy them at secondhand stores. Um, had a great love for, for all of this sort of stuff. And then the fact then that he was able to start creating like this living collection of celebrity with the film. Uh, with the screen test. Then that's what really establishing him as this filmmaker and then not having the access to the, the film show. Then he creates interview, but now it creates this other access to celebrity. So he's now having like this close connection with co collecting celebrity, being part of all of that. All of this was about belonging to, to begin with. And then I think too, the cool thing about interview is that he starts to do these really interesting pairings of, of people together. He has um, someone like Divine interviewing Troy Donahue. He had Truman Capote interview himself, you know, because who else is gonna interview Truman Capote? <laughs> you know? So, you know, he does these really interesting pairings in interviews that weren't happening anywhere else. That's Heather Sinkavich, director of the Sordoni Art Gallery at Wilkes University and curator of Andy Warhol. 15 minutes from images to icon. Patrick Leahy, president of Wilkes University, discussed his vision for making the arts an essential part of a student's learning experience while giving those in the community a chance to see something special in downtown Wilkes-Barre. I started at Wilkes five years ago, and uh, when I came to Wilkes, we realized that we needed to make big investments in the sciences and in the professions, you know, business and in nursing and pharmacy. And a couple years into it, I just said that I felt strongly that we needed to also make an, a significant investment in the arts because I have this philosophy that I think is shared by most of us at Wilkes, and that is that you can't be a true university 
without an enduring commitment to the arts. So what really spawned this uh, reinvention of the Sordoni Art Gallery was that idea that we needed to make sure that we're investing in the arts, not just for the benefit of the Wilkes-Barre community, but for the benefit primarily of our students, so many of whom are the first in their family to go to college, and we just don't feel that they've been properly introduced to the arts necessarily at home or even at school. How did you decide that the former Bartkowski jewelers would be your jewel? Well, given Bartkowski's location, let's be honest, it's been uh, on our mind for many years as a, a nice addition to our campus. I accelerated that because I just felt that as our campus expanded, in particular onto South Main Street, that we needed to continue that expansion down South Main Street. Bartikowski's was right there. And I went to see uh, Max Bartikowski and we finally came to agreement that this would be uh, a nice addition to Wilkes. When we bought it, we didn't know for sure what we were going to do with it. And there were so many competing demands for the space. And then we just finally determined that there were, there were two key uses that would be perfect, especially as the way in which it integrates into the community. One is a new communication center for our communication students, television, radio, the PR firm, the student newspaper. And then the second part of it, of course, would be to bring the Sordoni Art Gallery in a way so that it could integrate more easily into the downtown. And that's was, I think, you know, the dream of the individuals who were supportive of the arts around Wilkes for so many years is to find a way to integrate it more seamlessly into the community. Who had the suggestion to try to put this exhibition together featuring Andy Warhol? Where did that come from? I think Heather and I compete for the right to say that it was our idea. Now, I think we collaborated on this. I mean, I don't know quite candidly whether it was Heather or me, but uh, this summer I was visiting Pittsburgh with my family and uh, I dragged the four kids to the uh, Warhol Museum in downtown Pittsburgh. One of the things I found is so fascinating about Warhol was the, was the diversity of the individuals who were there at his museum. And I was able to you know, maintain the attention of my 10-year-old boy because of the colorful nature of the Warhol work and the and just the enchant, enchanting nature of it. So I think we thought a Pennsylvania native with a big name and someone who we think would be accessible to a wide variety of people. And we landed on Andy Warhol, and I absolutely envisioned us just buying a traveling show and bringing it here. And then when we hired Heather and realized the, the talent that she had, she said that she wanted to curate it herself. And we just thought, what a wonderful way to introduce the new Sordoni Gallery to the community. How has the community received this? Oh, I, I would say in my five years, I, I've never sensed so much electricity uh, in the community about something that Wilkes has done. I just think that it, it has really tied in so many things. One is a commitment to the arts when a lot of places around the country are cutting back their investments to the arts, for sure. But two, the way in which we uh, intentionally placed it on South Main Street to help with the revitalization of the downtown at the same time. I mean, for so many reasons, I find that the community has, uh, you know, has really embraced this whole idea and has pledged their ongoing support of the, of the gallery and I hope that that's going to be the case for decades to come.
15 minutes from Images to Icon runs through December 20th at the Sordoni Art Gallery on the campus of Wilkes University in downtown Wilkes-Barre. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Many of us are very curious about paranormal happenings, holistic healing, and the investigation into the unexplained. Practitioners from several specialties, including psychic mediums, numerologists, and Native American culturists, came together in Scranton last weekend for East Coast Paracon. Joe Hawk, co-founder of East Coast Paracon and a member of the Pennsylvania Paranormal Association, filled in the details of bringing this convention together. He also hosted Paranormal Science on Intercom Station WILK. We're actually not an investigation team per se. We actually started East Coast Paracon, myself uh, and Stan Zurich. Uh, we're both founders. And um, we started this over a cup of coffee because we wanted to have a place where people can go where they could feel comfortable talking about anything paranormal. Para meaning, of course, above. So paranormal, just, just above the norm. Talk about something if they may have lost a loved one or if they've had some, you know, people start hearing voices. Maybe somebody, you know, is psychic and they, they look at it a different way. And uh, we want somebody to come down and talk to like-minded individuals and maybe get some type of insight of what they're feeling or, or, or what they've seen. In your own experience, are you in tune with the paranormal personally? I do. I do have. Uh, I'm a retired police officer, so what people will call the sixth sense or your gut feeling, I believe people should honestly take a look at that and look inside themselves, because uh, I do believe that if more more people follow that, we all kind of have that instinct. It's just what we build upon to do that. So I would say yes. I, I'm in touch, maybe more than most, just because of my choice of profession. But I think if everybody looked at that, they had that in them too. Now, some people may say that uh, police officers are are analytical beings. You know, they they look at things, and it it's more of a black and white world, and it's evidence, etc. How does that play with you when you hear from individuals who tell you something that? that seems a little bit different. It's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. I agree completely. And that's exactly it. It's usually, there's usually a very little gray area with, with, with police officers. And that's the reason why that gray area I look at, because if science can't prove it and logic can't prove it, there has to be something else. And that's why you want to go further. It's the thirst for knowledge and the thirst for knowing that pushes me into that. Tell me about some people locally that have uh, approached you in the last couple of years and um, some of the things you've been involved in investigating, looking at, or, you know, maybe even providing an answer that helps to make sense out of something that is paranormal. Although East Coast Paracon is not, a, not an investigation team, I do belong to the Pennsylvania Paranormal Association, which is an investigation team. And we've had people from all over the area, uh, different states, and especially locally, that have come to us um, with little different things. Something as simple as maybe they had a smell in their home they're not aware of, or maybe they've, they've heard something, you know, things that go bump in the night, so to speak, all the way up to and including things that are actually physically getting moved, uh, people getting touched, uh, and, and sometimes even getting violently ill, um, you know, physically affected by that. So we've gone in we've done investigations and um there there's been such great evidence to to not the norm to the paranormal that we looked at it and we became a resolution team not just a a, a investigative team so we have actually psychics and people uh, such as clergy and of different faiths that come in and help us either clear a home or uh, help the individual what they may be dealing with you mentioned clergy uh, a lot of people who have a religious tradition obviously look at this stuff and they say we have no business in this realm what do you say to them 
I respect everyone's belief, for starters. I'm Roman Catholic. I was born and raised that. And even in Catholicism, um, there's a reason why the Roman Catholic Church and, and, and the diocese and stuff have certain individuals for, you know, for demonic possessions or stuff like that. You know, there's a reason why they put those people in effect. There's certain priests that are actually taught that. I'm not saying everything you come up with is demonic by any means. Uh, all the while I've been doing this, I don't think I've ever really truly entered a, you know, into a demonic spirit. However, I believe just like anything else, we would not appreciate the light if we didn't have dark. So there always, it's always a yin-yang. There's always a, a, a two sides everything. So I believe that in infinite good, there's also some type of bad out there, if you will. Talk about uh, setting up this event, East Coast Paracon. This is actually our third year in the Scranton area. The last two years, we're at the uh, uh, Mall of Steamtown, which is now the marketplace of Steamtown. Uh, we ended up in partnership with the Hilton. We start this roughly, um, honestly, probably in November. <laughs> so we'll start this next month going for next year's. And um, we try to bring as I said earlier, like-minded individuals together. So we have uh, holistic healers here, uh, metaphysical people, psychics, cryptozoologists, uh, UFOlogy, uh, people that believe in UFOs. We have authors here. We have paranormal teams and investigators. And we wanted to house everybody under one roof. So as I said earlier, someone that has had some type of those experiences could come and talk to somebody, like-minded individuals, and maybe get, even if it's just an ear to listen, or if it's actually some type of help and what they're looking for, that's what we're trying to provide here at East Coast Paracon. Every one of our, our people that are here and that we deal with are, are, are exceptional. We have a program out, you know, there's highlighted individuals, but everybody here, I could tell you that they are, they are personable, they're approachable, they're talkable. That's Joe Hawk, co-founder of East Coast Paracon. Psychic medium and master hypnotist Mary Barrett of Lexington, Kentucky, does past life regressions and told us about the process before allowing us to sit in on her demonstration for her audience. Mary, tell me a little bit about the work you do. <laughs> I do a lot of work. Psychic medium, I go and talk to people who have passed over to give the messages to the people that are still here. Psychic, I can predict the future. And hypnotist, I do everything, past life regressions or hypnotize for a habit, like a smoking habit. What are you going to do here today? I am going to get Stan under again. Again. <laughs> And when you say get him under, what are you going to do? See, a lot of people don't understand what hypnosis is. It's just like you're watching TV and you're so absorbed and, you know, you can pull yourself out of it anytime you want. Okay, and you're doing past life regressions, right? Explain that. He's going to tell us how many past lives he's had and then we'll go into one of them and they'll tell us, he will tell us who he was, what year it is, if he was married, how he died, stuff like that. And while this is happening, is he aware of what's happening? Sometimes they are. Last time we did this, I was well aware of what was being said, but I was not in control of saying anything. It was like I was here in my body, but someone else talking through me. Here's some of the session Mary Barrett conducted with Stan Zurich into his past life regression. Stan is a co-founder of East Coast Paracon and author of Suskin Screams. You're under, we need to know from your self-conscious how many past lives you have had. Seven. Now, let's go ahead and go into one of those past lives. Anyone that you want to go into, we will go into. Remember, you're not hearing anybody's, anybody's voice but mine. You're not hearing any noise. Now, you said seven lives. Let's go into one of them. On a ship. You're on a ship? Okay, great. What kind of ship is it? It's, it's got smokestacks, black smoke, smokestacks, lots of people. Okay, now remember, you're not going to experience anything. 
All you're going to do is tell me what you see. What kind of ship is it? Passenger liner. Okay, are you a guy or a girl? Guy. What's your name? Frederick. Frederick what? Olson. Okay, where are you from? England. Okay, are you married? Yes. How old are you? 32. Okay, what is your wife's name? Elizabeth. How old is she? 40. Okay. Um, are you both from England? Yes. Do you have any children? Two. What are their names? Dorothy, Samuel. How old are they? Seven and ten. How about your daughter? How old is Dorothy? Seven. Um, now I want you to tell me what year it is. Just breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. Oh, two. It's what? Oh, two. Oh, two. Are there any numbers in between or ahead of that? 19. Mary Barrett worked with Stan Zurich at East Coast Paracon in a demonstration of past life regression. Virginia Rose Centrillo of Queens, New York, works with members of the Pennsylvania Paranormal Association. She recalled that her gift as a medium came to her at a very young age. Tell me about yourself and when you discovered that you had a gift. I was very young. I was maybe two, three years old. And my family's Italian. They come from the town of Benevento and all the women have it. So in the town of Benevento in Italy, in the Naples region, is the town of witches, which is interesting, right? And uh, all my, all the women, there were 13 aunts that all had this gift. And my grandmother, I was fortunate enough to be raised with my grandmother. So my grandmother noticed since I was two that I had this gift because her mother used to come to me. Mommy on her name was. She already had passed right after I was born. And she used to come into my room and play with me. And if I had an earache, she would hold my ears. I would never complain. My mother would find out later I had an earache. Very interesting experience. And growing up in this particular house, there was a spirit in the house, actually a ghost, an earthbound. Meaning earthbound is that they didn't find the light or they had an earth grievance to move forward and they couldn't get it out because no one can hear them. So that's what I do for a living. I'm like a pivot. I allow them to speak to me. I get rid of the earth grievance for them and then they go into the light and they become lighter and then they can see the light. Because sometimes we hold in a lot of anger. They could have been murdered. They might have died too suddenly. They might... Um, there might have been a misunderstanding during their death. They might have been, you know, it could have been a number of things, suicide, whatever, that might have held them back. So, or they were so in love with their home and their family, they didn't want to leave. So that happens a lot. Anyway, going back to my grandmother, my grandmother used to say, Virginia Rosa, you see the man in this house? I go, yeah, I play with him all the time. He was a German man in very old clothing. And he used to play with me and say, and talk to me. She goes, you're not afraid of the man? I said, no. She goes, you know why the man is here? And I go, no, Grandma, I don't. Because he's a lost. And he forgot all about what he's supposed to do with God. He forgot that part. He only remembers what he did on this earth. I said, oh, okay. She says, so when you see them, and they're a little scary, you call God and you call your angels and you tell them, come and get in this man, pray. I'll teach you some prayers. And she did. And ever since I was a child, I wasn't really afraid of the dark. Now I am. I can't even tell you that. That's hysterical. But that's how it started. I was two years old. This man was playing with me. I'd see the ball roll back very slowly, but he was playing with me. And my great-grandfather on my grandfather's side was living in the house. He was dying 
priest came to the house. I was about three, four years old at this point. And my grandmother said, you stay here. And the priest went upstairs to bless my great-grandfather. And the German man came with a very heavy accent. I have to go now. And he put his hand on my face. And he said, I think it was Liebchen. And he went like this. He held my face uh, with his hand on my cheek. And he says, I have to go. And he went up the stairs. I followed him. And I opened the bedroom door. And as the priest was doing a blessing, as they do the cross, and as he's going across with his hand and then down, I saw the man leave into the energy, into some energy. I didn't understand it. And my grandma was like, Virginia Rosa, no, no, no. I said, the man, the man. She says, tell me later. And then I see my great-grandfather take a breath. And then I saw him move up. He became like a smoke. It was weird what I saw. I can't explain it to you. It was like a cartoon. But I remember it clearly to this day, step by step what happened. And my grandmother just noticed I had the gift, and she nurtured it quietly, very quietly. Um, because back in the day, there were people that just were not happy, you know, and I couldn't talk about it. I actually got thrown out of Catholic school, but that's a whole other story. But uh, yeah, so I had the gift for a very long time. I remember it ever since I was a little puppy. And as I moved forward, I realized I started doing mediumship work. I started doing readings. I taught meditation. I still teach meditation, how people should ground and come to know themselves, because everybody has this gift. It's a personal velocity when you're going to get there and how you want to use it. And again, through meditation, you can tap into this energy. It's like going to the gym. You just don't do it once and think you're beautiful and look at me. It's a continuum for your guides and angels to get used to you. So I used to do readings. I stopped that. My thing is, my calling is really should help souls. Our, my creator gave me this gift to help souls go into the light, souls that are lost through tragedy, war, suicide, whatever it may be, people who just could not find the light. And that's what I do, and I work with the Pennsylvania Paranormal Association. Been with them since 2009, and it's been a wonderful journey. It's an up and down roller coaster. Love it to death. I wouldn't change it in the world. Got the best teammates who are very understanding and work with me. I've learned to work with them. It's wonderful to be validated with historians and everything. So it's really a great journey I'm on. I used to do this with other mediums, but we didn't have all the hooky-do equipment. So it's nice when I point to a corner and say, oh, Uncle Chuck's in the corner. And everybody's looking at me like, where, where? Now they have machinery that goes beep, boop, beep, boop. And that's how we know <laughs> he's there. But otherwise, uh, and I never had historians behind me to back me up. And, I, and I'm very fortunate at times I get first and last names. So, and then they look them up and there you go. Are people surrounded by spirits or are spirits in locations? How does it work? I mean, do you see spirits around people? Yes, I can actually, not all the time. So I'm not on all the time. I know like some relatives when I go to dinners, they look at me like, what is she saying? Meanwhile, I'm just looking out the window and think I'm looking at them. Um, yes, we are surrounded by guides and angels at all times. They can't really interfere much in our lives. They can only direct us because it's a, you know, you have free will. But you have guides and angels all the time around you. The harder you work through spirituality and to find your spirituality, the more you, you gather your angels and guides. And usually your guides are somebody that earthly. They were here with you before. Uh, yes, from other lifetimes. 
And then sometimes relatives come in, most of the time relatives come in, which is really cool. And they come in and they say, listen, tell her to do this. Tell her to clean the house. Tell her to fix the plumbing. They'll talk about house stuff, which is interesting. They just want you to know that they're around and they tell you stuff and, and that's it. But, you know, I've learned through this work, one thing I'm going to say, and this is the God's honest truth. Every time somebody passes and a loved one comes through, they tell me straight out, I should have laughed more. I should have played more. I should have not taken things too serious. I should let the small things go. It's a waste of time. Life is very precious and very short. So that's important to understand that we need to just lighten up and just love. Love is only what our soul knows. This is just a vehicle we're in. Our soul has so many lifetimes in it. And by meditating and tapping into it, you can open up so many beautiful stories because you've been so many people so many different times over and over again. Virginia Rose Centrillo was a recent guest at East Coast Paracon in Scranton. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. The role dogs play in our lives seems to be in a bit of evolution. They've gone from the dog house to our house, and many have taken to referring to their pets as members of the family. But how much are we trying to change canines to be more like us? Mark Goldberg, a suburban Chicago dog trainer, sought some answers from an unusual group, monks. He told us what they said and his ideas, too, when he joined us to discuss his new book, Let Dogs Be Dogs understanding canine nature and mastering the art of living with your dog, which was written with lots of input from the monks of New Skeet. Were you a dog person before you wrote this book? I think I was, uh, I, I was born a dog person. Um, <laughs> I was born in the year of the dog to a father who was born in the year of the dog and the Chinese year of the dog. And in fact, um, I would say the first way that I earned pocket money was training dogs for my teachers at the age of 12 because I started studying it when I was 11. So I, I was kind of a child bride to this stuff. <laughs> That's so good. Now, uh, how did you hook up with the, the monks of New Skeet? What was that like? And where did you find them? Did they find you? How did that work? Well, it was really um, kind of serendipity because here I am, a Jewish guy, and my second family is, is a group of an order of monks at a monastery on top of a mountain, <laughs> literally. So um, it, it's quite a funny story, but I was, uh, I've been a dog trainer in one way or another uh, almost all my life. I, I kind of came up reading the books that the monks of New Skeet wrote. They were discovered by Life magazine in the early 70s, and then by the late 70s, they wrote a best-selling book called How to Be Your Dog's Best Friend. And that book sold 600,000 copies, which is huge in the dog world. And then they followed that up with The Art of Raising a Puppy. And eventually, we ran into one another at a, at a conference, at a dog trainer's conference. And Brother Christopher, who is the head trainer there, and I, we just sort of clicked. And eventually, I visited the monastery to see what was going on there. And I was just hooked by the, by, by the peace, the tranquility, and the, and the good dog work that was going on there. So I just began to go back and back, formed relationships, and eventually we, we came up with the idea for this book, Let Dogs Be Dogs. What did you learn from their methodology? What was an eye-opener for you, Mark? Well, you know, the, the funny thing is, is that we, we all came up at a similar time and in similar ways. So I think what really struck me was how we had drawn so many of the same conclusions, which is that dogs need guidance, they need leadership, but that need not be harsh. 
and at the same time, it need not be permissive. So I, I think what really struck me was the deep humility, the deep modesty uh, that the monks have, combined with a, a really strong drive to help their clients, because they train dogs for clients, part of what they do in their order to support themselves, the, the deep desire that they have to help their clients connect better with their dogs. And so we sort of coined a phrase, compassionate authority. This is what we're looking for with dogs, because authority without compassion is just mean, and people either shouldn't do it or shouldn't want to do it. And compassion without authority is so permissive that dogs can get themselves into trouble, Sue. So (laughs) what we're looking to do is to combine those two elements um, into one, compassionate authority, so that we can help dogs to be um, wrapped better around what their owners need. And also, we want our owners to be reasonable with their dogs. The change does not start with the dog. Change starts with the human, because we're in charge of this relationship, really. Um, Monks, I found, are very good about helping people transform their lives. So this was a pretty natural connection for us. I've noticed recently, Mark, that people do personify their dogs quite a bit. And uh, are, are we going too far with our with our love and, 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 of course, putting pants on them and stuff? Sue, that is exactly why we named the book what we did, <laughs> you know, because we, we ultimately um, do our dogs a service if we honor their nature. So let dogs be dogs doesn't mean we'll just let them do whatever they want, but it means respect the creature that is the dog. Um, and listen, in some ways it is like parenting children. And what, what I can tell you is I had, let me tell you a quick story. I had a, a mother and daughter in with their extremely naughty dog here. You know, I'm in, based in the Chicago area. So they were here at my facility. And the daughter was 28 and, and, you know, mom was in her 50s, I guess. And as I was explaining to these ladies who loved their terribly naughty little dog, the, the essence, the philosophy of how we were going to approach this, I, I began to stress the... The, the nature of parenting. And the first thing that we have to do with our dogs is to teach them the rules of civilized behavior to keep them out of doggy jail, you know, if you will, out of the shelter. And that resonated, so I kind of kicked it up into high gear. We, we dog trainers love analogies. That's like our thing because it helps connect people to the reality that we have in our mind, right? And so I said, so for example, mom, you wouldn't have been drinking with your daughter here when she was 15. You know, you don't line up shots on her 15th birthday, you know, because the first thing we have to do with our kids is teach them the rules of civilized behavior. But then when they're old enough, yeah, cocktail's a good thing to share. And they, Sue, they both cracked up. <laughs> they started laughing. They looked guilty. And, and, and I said, well, okay, what happened here? And, and the mother looked at me and said, well, I was never going to win the Mother of the Year Award. <laughs> You're raising my daughter. <laughs> so I think they did line up shots on her 15th birthday. But with our dogs, I think it's a lot better to prioritize parenting them first and buddying up second. But so many of us just want to be loved really hard, deep, and long that we go right to the friendship aspect of the relationship and we skip all of the rules of civilized behavior, and that's what gets dogs in trouble. So uh, from the very beginning, when we uh, meet a dog for the first time, we have to understand that they want an authority figure, right, Mark? They thrive on it. You know, they, they need it. Here's an, another quick story to illustrate that. Um, I trained a dog for a lady who, and this dog was terrible. I mean, literally the week before she was going to bring him to me, she called me in tears because he had jumped out a slightly open window in her moving car. And he was due in, and so she had to cancel the training because the dog was lost. 
jumped out of a moving car. And she was obviously super distressed, but she called me a couple days later. The dog was wearing a tag, and he was found, so she brought him to me. And I trained him, and he trained up lovely. I mean, the, the concept to that particular dog, that there were rules that he had to follow, it was a little alien at first, but eventually it made him happy because dogs are born to follow a leader. And, and, and by the way, compassionate leadership means we use everything that the dog likes in order to bring him around our way of thinking. Right. So as I was explaining these concepts to her, her mouth dropped open and she stopped me and she said, you know, I'm a child psychiatrist and you are telling me exactly everything that I tell the parents of my patients, that the rules are invisible and that children will test them and that they depend upon the parents to reinforce those rules so that the children know that they are in place because the, the guidance of those rules is what makes children feel safe which was a little mind-blowing to me, like it's such a similar concept. And I asked her, well, then why didn't you do it for your dog? And she laughed, and she said, because he's my baby, and no doctor should treat herself. Wow. She, she, she had you there, for sure. Yeah, she sure did. So I was glad to be of help, but the concepts are very similar. And you know, most people intuitively, on some level, know how to raise children because we're all of the same species. We're human, right? But... We look at the dog, we, we might look at a 12-week-old puppy, and we see a creature who is alert and fast, lightning-fast reflexes, intelligent, exploring the world. So we forget that we need to guide them, observe them, interrupt behavior that we don't like, and guide it back to behavior for which we can reward. Because if we don't do that, that puppy is going to eat right through an electrical cord and get hurt. Guidance is an important thing that we do for our kids but we, we tend to not apply it so much towards our dogs, and that's getting dogs into trouble daily. Well, I want to ask you one more question, Mark, about a lot of people now are getting dogs from rescue groups or shelters. Now, what advice do you have for them? Because a lot of times those dogs are grown and they have certain habits. Well, that's a really good point. First, let me state that I support this. You can teach an old dog new tricks. We do it all the time. The last six or seven of my dogs I acquired that way, and they all turned out wonderful. I'm, I'm living right now with two dogs I've had for years that were rescue dogs. But you're right, they can come preloaded with certain kinds of problems. So the first thing I would do would be to look very carefully at the track record of the rescue. Do as much research as you can before taking a dog from a particular rescue because some of them are extremely reputable and unbelievably diligent about vetting the dogs and checking their behavior before putting them out on the street. But then there are slightly less reputable um, shelters who are just more anxious about pushing dogs out to make room for more dogs, which, of course, is a benevolent thing to do, but sometimes they push out dogs with serious behavior problems. And um, then I think the, the next best thing you can do is when taking a dog home, prioritize education first and um, buddy up second. So it's not that you won't love your new dog. You should. You, you will and you should. But I think the, the first maybe couple of weeks, it's a good idea to crate that dog at night and maybe let him drag a leash around during the day when you're watching him only so it's safe. But um, this way, if you run into a problem, you can just pick up the leash and guide the dog back to where you want him instead of grabbing the dog or his collar. And that will come across a lot more benign to the dog. So we have a lot of resources about this kind of stuff at letdogsbedogs.org. So your listeners can go there and, and look up more 
more stuff. But I, I'm really in favor of rescuing dogs, but we have to be sensible about this, too. I agree with that uh, 100%, and uh, I hope that people don't shy away from it. I know it can be challenging, and, and sometimes you get uh, into a situation that's unpredictable. Um, is there ever a point, Mark, when you think that somebody should return one of those animals if it's just not working out for them? Well, I, I personally, I think people with small children in the house should have a fairly low threshold for people or human-oriented aggression. The problem with this is, um, Sue, that um, rambunctiousness and aggression can look a little similar. So for some people, it might be a bit hard to tell apart. And I would say don't make excuses for the dog. He's growling at your child, and he's fairly new in the house within the first month. It might actually get worse rather than get better unless you seek professional help. So I always urge people to contact a really reputable, very experienced professional dog trainer for an evaluation if you have doubts. But, you know, if, if your dog is on the couch, it's not necessarily a bad thing. My dogs are all over my couch. But if your children can't get up there next to the dogs because the dogs object, it's, it's time to call for some help and get a, get a professional eyeball on that. That's Mark Goldberg, author of the new book, Let Dogs Be Dogs, Understanding Canine Nature and Mastering the Art of Living with Your Dog. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.